0: uh... in modern warfare every nation in every region now has a decision to make either you're with us or you're with the terrorists that land over there is yours you'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and god is on your side Welcome to the Darkened Hour. We also the sort of the, the dark side, if you will. we are going to spend time in the shadows and in the intelligence world. Uh, a lot of what needs to be done here will have to be done quietly, without any discussion, using sources and methods uh, that are available to our intelligence agencies, uh, if we're going to be successful. Uh, that's the world these folks operate in. And uh, so it's going to be vital for us to, uh, to use any means at our disposable, at our disposal basically, to, uh, to achieve our objective.
1: U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney was the single most prepared man in the White House on September 11, 2001. Probably the most assured in the country on that fateful and harrowing day of September 11, 2001. During the 1980s, he secretly participated in a top-secret program which simulated a doomsday scenario where it was to ensure the continuity of government in a nuclear fallout with the Soviet Union. The challenge was to ensure civil order and control over the military in the event where most of the executive branch was decimated. On September 11, 2001, it was Cheney who calmly took control of the Presidential Emergency Operations Command Center. Cheney was a skeptic regarding the CIA and was insistent on reviewing the data himself. He didn't trust nobody and nobody thought so about who entrusted him with top-secret material from an agency he completely distrusted there was no proper analysis of intelligence before giving it to the president and cheney wanted to manage that intelligence himself with the exception of richard clark the cia's counterterrorism center and the FBI, the Bush administration had no insight into Osama Bin Laden or Al Qaeda. The lesson for Bush and Cheney was that Bin Laden saw them as soft. Soon after the September 11, 2001 attacks, Cheney saw fit to add some of the best lawyers in the country who would work in secret at the White House, while the Department of Justice came up with legal ramifications for a vast expansion of government power in waging the war on terror. These lawyers drafted legislature in which enemy combatants could not be protected under the Geneva Convention, where torture can be legal to an extent, and where the president can suspend writ of habeas corpus, which guarantees a person the right to challenge his imprisonment in front of an independent authority in which they could be held in indefinite detention for the duration of the war against terrorism. Arthur Schlesinger remarked on what he thought about President Bush's policy for torture in 2000, quote, no position taken has done more damage to the American reputation in the world ever, end quote. On the evening of September 11th, a series of cables shown to CIA Director George Tennant. And his chief of staff, John Moseman, found that the CIA were closely monitoring two known Al Qaeda operatives in the United States, Khalid al Midar and Awapa Hazmi, up until January 2000, when they reported that they lost track of both men as they left an Al Qaeda summer meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. However, Tenet would lie to the National Commission on the Terrorist Attacks on September 11th and the Joint House Inquiry as they claimed the CIA had warned the Bush White House about an attack by bin Laden in August of 2001 and that they sent information to the FBI regarding both terrorists. One such cable that reached the CIA's bin Laden issue station, codename Alex Station, was read by Doug Miller, New York FBI counterterrorism. He would read the Central Intelligence Report that stated that Khalid al-Midar and Nawab al-Hazmi both had dual U.S. visas, and we're heading to the United States to Los Angeles International Airport on January 15, 2001. However, Miller's draft report to the FBI in Washington, D.C. was not validated by the CIA's bin Laden issue station chief, Tom Wilshire. And the CIA sat on this information for 16 months until Richard Blee, the new chief of station, replacing Michael Scheuer vaguely mentions Khalid al and and Wapahazmi with the White House leading investigators at a principal's meeting on August 24th, 2001. This was not the first time the CIA managed to internationally intentionally withhold information from the FBI or the State Department. Back in January 2001, during the transition from the Clinton to Bush administrations, Kofa Black sent a classified letter entitled The blue sky memo to the Bush administration warning of Al Qaeda and steps needed to fight against it without restrictions. No action was taken on these ideas in the few remaining weeks of the Clinton administration. National Security Advisor Sandy Berger did not recall seeing or being briefed on the blue sky memo, nor was the memo discussed during the transition with incoming top Bush administration officials. The CIA also never cared to mention to anyone that the NSA also had a wiretap on an Al-Qaeda communications hub located in the capital of Yemen, Sana. This came from information also gleaned by the National Security Agency from bin Laden's satellite phone, which was also monitored by the signals intelligence agencies. Richard Clark also tried repeatedly to get Bush's National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice, to hold principals meetings reporting about Al-Qaeda, only to be ignored. Clark also pled his case to Bush to help the Northern Alliance in their fight against the Taliban, only to be rejected. The CIA were known to hoard information from other competing agencies, but this time, it would cost lives. During Tenet's testimony of the Joint House Inquiry, Carl Levin, a panelist, inquired to Tenet, about the CIA's refusal to share Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi U.S. visas with the FBI, to which Tenet responded that nobody had read the cable, since it was an information-only cable. Clark was later interviewed by Newsweek about this. Quote, I believe for the longest time that this was one or two low-level desk officers who got this information about Hasmi and Al-Midar and somehow didn't realize the significance. But 50 50 cia officers knew this and they included Tennant and all kinds of people who were regularly talking to me saying i'm pissed because it doesn't begin to describe it and quote now the cia were going to be trusted with leaning the nation out of the rubble so to speak by capturing terrorists involved with the attacks and also being the lead in interrogating them leading federal and intelligence officials to question their ability to conduct these operations with any validity or moral standing. On the evening of September 12th, the first and only foreign flight to enter the U.S. airspace after the national shutdown was a private jet carrying several British intelligence officials, including Sir Richard Dearlove, the chief of MI6, David Manning, foreign policy advisor, as well as a number of others. The British were nervous about how the United States would react toward al-Qaeda, but Tenet said no action would be taken against Iraq, as many leading neoconservatives allied with Israel were later whispering in Bush's ear over the next couple of days. The very next day, Bush convened his National Security Council in the Situation Room. Tennant and Kofor Black led the briefing, with Tennant proposing and boosting the Northern Alliance with CIA paramilitary teams and special forces from the U.S. military. Near the end of the briefing, Black turned to President Bush and exclaimed, quote, you give us this mission, we can get them. When we're through, they will have flies walking on their eyeballs, end quote. After the briefing, Bush approved of almost everything the CIA asked him for, and then some. Bush had also remarked to Ashcroft and stated that the terrorist attack should never happen again, to which Ashkarp replied that he would do whatever it took. The bin Laden issue station was located in a drab fifth-floor government office building in a shopping mall in Tyson Center Ridge. Select employees taxed to it needed a special identity card to be swiped through to enter. Its primary task was to collect data on Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda anywhere in the world while employing a multinational agency task force to work alongside with them. But the CIA's Counterterrorism Terrorism Center could not be fully understood nor understand that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed altogether, or was he just an Al-Qaeda operative or independent freelancer? Hardly anyone in the CIA understood Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, nor did anyone convey on information from the CIA about this man. One agency in particular that knew Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was on the outs with the CIA, the FBI. However, Kofa Black took bin Laden head on. And during the early 1990s, while living in Khartoum, Sudan, bin Laden tried to have Black assassinated, which pushed this to a personal issue between Kofa Black and Osama bin Laden regarding the fanatical Saudi. The CIA had never penetrated the al-Qaeda network, and after four years, the bin Laden issue station was replaced with a more agency-minded individual in Richard Blee. Later, as Black was tasked to head the counterterrorism center, he would outline a memo inaugurating the idea of using paramilitary death squads, which were authorized to hunt and kill bin Laden. Days after the attacks, however, White House lawyers drafted a proposal that would give the Bush White House virtually unchecked authority and the ability to do virtually anything. Alberto Gonzalez, White House lead counsel, demanded that Congress expand on the president's authority even further than what they were already agreed upon. Bush wanted to wage war against suspected terrorists abroad and inside the United States. Congress, however, approved on a compromise that they would give the president the authority to treat the war on terror as an armed conflict with few boundaries. Bush could use all necessary and appropriate force to wage war against any nation harboring terrorists or even suspected of harboring terrorists, whether they were persons or organizations determined by the Bush administration that were part of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. But was this something that the Bush administration really approved of? John Ashcroft, Colin Powell, and Condoleezza Rice saw the dangers of what White House legal counsel Alberto Gonzalez was trying to formulate.
0: blessing, Goldsmith became the new head of the Office of Legal Counsel charged with reviewing the legality of the administration's most secret operations. I was being briefed into a lot of programs, uh, classified programs, counterterrorism programs. I was extraordinarily naive. I had a sense that this was an important job. I did not have a full sense of the nature of the issues or the pace. Before long, Goldsmith headed for David Addington's office. It was time to learn about the program.
1: Jack, like most of the others who were briefed on this, walks into Addington's office, which he regards as a little bit peculiar. What's this doing in Vice President's lawyer's office? Addington opens the safe, pulls it out. There's the red cover. It
0: says top secret slash SI slash comment slash Stellar Wind, the cover name for this program. As he read the document, Goldsmith began to have grave doubts. The program was an example of the administration going it alone, in secret, based on inadequate legal reasoning and flawed legal opinions.
1: The NSA began to run the program almost immediately upon full approval by the Bush White House. The NSA wanted to wiretap American citizens, but hidden under the program's document, were a vague term, enemy combatants. This gave the Bush White House, which later extended to the Obama administration, full unchecked approval by the White House to the NSA to run counterterrorism espionage programs, illegal by any definition of the word, on American citizens' private data, whether it be email, text message, or phone call. The more harrowing and frightening proposition was that client providers like AT&T and Verizon agreed to the program's totality. On September 14, 2001, the Senate voted unanimously 420 to 1 to expand on more unlimited war powers for the president. A secret White House memo from the Justice Department argued that in times of national emergency. If the president decided the threat justified deploying the military inside the country, he would be given authority to do so. In regards to this, many people didn't realize the magnitude of what was about to happen. Despite the risks that third parties could be injured by exchange of gunfire, the government could also shoot down civilian airliners that were hijacked by terrorists or people suspected to be terrorists, and set up military operations inside American cities. Two men who were influential in drafting these remarkable pieces of legislation were John Yu, the Deputy Chief of Justice Department, and Timothy Flanagan, lawyer for the White House Legal Counsel Office. Both men were active in the Federalist Society, a group of conservative lawyers who wanted to reestablish the original interpretation of the Constitution, John Yoo and David Addington wanted to authorize the fight against terrorism from a criminal justice matter to a full-fledged military war, with the president having full war powers, thereby allowing the CIA and Pentagon to capture or kill and question terrorist suspects as swiftly as possible, with as much latitude as possible, without any legal walls possible. Both Bush and Cheney made clear they wanted to be aggressive as the law would allow them to. You would argue that no one could limit the method, timing, or place regarding the President's war on terror. And on October 25, 2001, Vice President Dick Cheney called for a meeting with members of the Senate and House Intelligence Oversight Committees as he outlined a closely guarded plan from Bush, and it was the terrorist surveillance program which allowed for the NSA to intercept phone calls and other communications, including emails, to and from the United States without warrant. The program was written by David Addington. There would be a vehement disagreement between the White House counsel and lawyers in the NSA about how to bypass U.S. laws regarding the privacy of citizens' data. The White House later engaged with NSA Director Michael Hayden about the need for the NSA to collect as much metadata as possible without the use of walls. He was given a green light.
0: At the CIA, Director George Tenet was under pressure from the Vice President. The director had a meeting with Vice President Cheney and his top aide, David Addington, And uh, he was asked, what can be done? What can be done uh, that isn't being done? 9-11 made necessary a shift of policy.
1: Cheney says, in effect, to Tenet, make me a shopping list. Tell me what you want to do that we're not letting you do yet.
0: Tenet, whose own agency was designing covert operations against al-Qaeda, called General
1: Hayden. George calls me. And says, Mike, any more you can do? I said, George, no, not within my authorities, not within my current authorities. Paused and said, that's not actually the question I asked you. Is there anything more you could do? I said, I'll get back to you. On September 20th, 2001, the Project for the New American Century, also known as PNAC, an influential neoconservative think tank, publishes a letter addressed to President Bush insisting that the war on terrorism include, as one of its objectives, the removal of Saddam Hussein from power, even if evidence does not link to Iraq directly for the attack. Four years earlier, PNAC leading experts Robert Kagan and William Crystal, along with other proponents of the organization, wrote a letter to Bill Clinton, advising him to conduct a military raid on the country in which Clinton failed to enact. The letter also stated, quote, failure to undertake such an effort will constitute an early and perhaps decisive surrender in the war on international terrorism, end quote. PNAC also says the US should demand that Iran and Syria cease all support of Hezbollah. And if they fail to do so, the United States should retaliate against those two countries as well. Israel is praised in the letter as America's staunchest ally against international terrorism. Douglas Fyfe suggests in a draft memo that the United States should consider hitting terrorists outside the Middle East in the initial offensive, perhaps deliberately selecting a non-Al Qaeda target like Iraq. Other regions he proposes attacking include South America and Southeast Asia. His reasons, was that an initial attack against such targets would, quote, surprise the terrorists, and quote, and catch them off guard. Douglas Feith didn't hide his intentions regarding Iraq and what other leading neoconservatives wanted the White House to jump on, and that was the conflict in Iraq. It had to happen by any means necessary. Douglas fight would later go on 60 Minutes, and he said the following.
0: Explain to me, uh, because many Americans still don't understand it, why did
1: we invade Iraq? The president decided that the threats from the Saddam Hussein regime were so great that if we had left him in power, we would be fighting him down the road at a time and place of his choosing.
0: If Douglas fight doesn't look or sound much like a warrior, that's because he isn't. He's an intellectual, a hawkish, neoconservative defense policy wonk who occupied one of the top rungs in the Pentagon ladder, playing a key role in shaping the military's response to 9-11 and the decision to go to war with Saddam Hussein. Why was the decision made to go after him after 9-11? Because we knew even then he didn't have anything to do with it. What we did after 9-11 was look Broadly at the
1: international terrorist network from which the next attack on the United States might come. And we did not focus narrowly only on the people who were specifically responsible for 9-11. Our main goal was preventing the next attack. The Bush White House had forced the hand of the intelligence community to find al-Qaeda and an Iraq connection. When the FBI failed, The CIA had taken up the task, but were split. Tenet, however, had a wild card. According to Flint Leverett, senior staff member of the Bush National Security Council, quote, there were constant efforts to pressure the intelligence community to provide assessments that would support their views. If they didn't get what they wanted out of the intelligence community, they simply created their own intelligence, end quote. Meanwhile, the White House, especially under Dick Cheney, wanted to reformat laws regarding prisoners of war. And on November 13, 2001, John Yoo had sanctioned White House plans to give the Defense Department sole unquestioned authority to decide which terrorists will be tried in military commissions. This move was considered the most abrasive and most dangerous move the White House enacted in years. Secretary of State Colin Powell, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and Attorney General John Ashcroft were left out of the loop, meaning that federal law took no precedence over government law. Addington would later edit the draft to where the White House and not the Defense Department would decide which terrorists were tried. The Department of Justice has always been the agency to try and labeled terrorists. Now, enemies to the president of the United States personally could be labeled terrorists. The memo also ignored international law, suggesting that the president could abide by it or not, and terrorists would not be afforded protection of the Geneva Convention. This would mean that any foreign nation that the president deems as a nation that allows terrorists living freely inside of it, or conspired in terrorism, would come under attack. Defendants would have limited rights to confront their accusers. They would also not be able to see evidence against them while also unable to stand in front of their accusers at trial. Another term for this is indefinite detention. These rules for the military commission would be dictated on an ad hoc basis by the Secretary of Defense, Donna Rumsfeld. Stephen Kenny, an Australian lawyer, remarked that the United States will never charge anyone and that there is no incentive to do so. They can hold and interrogate every single detainee forever. On December 19, 2001, Pakistani security forces captured an individual escaping from Afghanistan. Even Sheikh Al-Libi was turned over to the CIA. He was Alleged chief of the Chaldean trading camp in Afghanistan, FBI agent for the New York City office Jack Clunin advised FBI agents to go and interview him. Russell Fincher from the New York City office and Mar- Marty Marion, a New York City detective, spoke with Al Libby. They got much information, including one plot, which was the bombing of a U.S. embassy in Aden, Yemen. The information from Al Libby was shared with the CIA, but much like with every FBI prisoner. The CIA quickly took over the loud Libby case. Clunin retired in disgust over the decision. However, the decision came from Bush, who favored Tenet over Mueller, as Bush preferred the CIA's tough guy approach. He also approved of the rendition program, and after 9/11, the staff at CIA counterterrorism had grown from 300 to 1,200 in weeks. It is not known exactly how many people have been renditioned by the CIA since the program remains classified. The United States chose Egypt as the country to send prisoners using the program to enforce torture methods. Egypt was notoriously known for using torture methods which are illegal inside the United States. Each rendition subject is authorized either by George Tenet or the head of the Counterterrorism Center. In 1998, President Clinton signed a classified memo entitled Apprehension, Extradition, Rendition, and Prosecution of Wanted Fugitives. After 9-11, CIA black sites were seen in Cuba, Afghanistan, and Poland. Soon, over a dozen countries were secretly involved in the program. According to the Washington Post, December 18, 2005, they said of this regarding the black sites in Europe quote members of the rendition group follow a simple but standard procedure dressed head to toe in black including masks they blindfold and cut the clothes off their new captives. then administer an enema and sleeping drugs they outfit detainees in a diaper and jumpsuit for what can be a day-long trip their destinations, either a detention facility operated by cooperative countries in the Middle East and Central Asia, including Afghanistan, or one of the CIA's own covert prisons, referred to in classified documents as black sites, which at various times have been operated in eight countries, including several in Eastern Europe, end quote. On January 18, 2002, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld sent an order to the Joint Chiefs of Staff declaring that the military no longer needed to follow the Geneva Convention's rules in handling of people suspected of being Taliban or al-Qaeda. The president had decided that all prisoners captured on are enemy combatants. After being beaten by his captors in Egypt, Sheikh Ibn al-Libi fabricated a story regarding al-Qaeda and Iraq. Al-Libi told his Egyptian officers, quote, Iraq, acting on behest of al-Qaeda militant Abu Abdallah, who is Mohammed Atif's emissary, agreed to provide unspecified chemical or biological weapons training for two al-Qaeda associates beginning in December of 2000. The two individuals departed for Iraq but did not return, so I was not in a position to know if any training had taken place, end quote. His forced confessions were used by Secretary of State Colin Powell to the United Nations Security Council to go to war with Iraq. Powell began to give his speech without proper vetting from his advisor, Lawrence Wilkerson, who helped him write the memo. The problem was the information provided in the document itself was not properly vetted by anyone to see if the contents were indeed legitimate.
0: I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling, what you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts and Iraqis behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. None of this should come as a surprise to any of us. Terrorism has been a tool used by Saddam for decades. Saddam was a supporter of terrorism long before these terrorist networks had a name. And this support continues. The nexus of poisons and terror is new. The nexus of Iraq and terror is old. The combination is lethal. With this track record, Iraqi denials of supporting terrorism take their place alongside the other Iraqi denials of weapons of mass destruction. It is all a web of lies. When we confront a regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction and provides haven and active support for terrorists, we're not confronting the past. We are confronting the present.
1: On September 8, 2006, the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released phase two of its report on pre-war intelligence on Iraq. Conclusion three of the report states the following, quote, post-war findings support the Defense Intelligence Agency February 2002 assessment that Ibn Sheikh al-Libi was likely intentionally misleading his debriefers when he said that Iraq provided two al-Qaeda associates with chemical and biological weapons training in 2000. Post-war findings do not support the CIA's assessment that this reporting was credible. No post-war information has been found that indicates chemical or biological weapons training occurred and the detainee who provided the key key pre-war reporting about this training recanted his claims after the war. CIA's January 2003 version of Iraq's support for terrorism described Al-Libby's reporting for chemical and biological weapons training as credible, but noted that the individuals who traveled to Iraq for chemical and biological weapons training had not returned. So Al-Libby was not in position to know if the training had even taken place. In January of 2004, Al-Libby recanted his allegations about chemical and biological weapons training and many of his other claims about Iraq's links to al-Qaeda. He told the briefers that, to the best of his knowledge, al-Qaeda never sent any individuals into Iraq for any kind of support in chemical or biological weapons. Al-Libby told the briefers that he fabricated information while in U.S. custody to receive better treatment and in response to threats of being transferred to a foreign intelligence service, which he believed would torture him. He said that later, while he's being debriefed, by a redacted Foreign Intelligence Service, he fabricated more information in response to physical abuse and threats of torture. The Foreign Government Service denies any pressure during Al Libby's interrogation. In February 2004, the CIA reissued the debriefing reports from Al Libby to note that he had recanted information. A CIA officer explained that while CIA believes Al Libby fabricated information, the CIA cannot determine whether or what portions of the original statements or latter recants are true or false, end quote. The Bush neocon warhawks such as Richard Pearl, Douglas Feit, Paul Wolfowitz, and Robert Kagan ultimately got what they wanted after 20 years, a full-scale invasion of Iraq. Later, on May 19, 2009, Egyptian authorities found Sheikh Ibn al-Libi hanged in his cell. His death was ruled a suicide. Suspicions arose that he was killed on orders from the CIA, as they feared international organizations were going to visit him and get him to speak on his torture from his captives. On May 12, 2012, the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission found John Yoo, along with former President George Bush, former Vice President Dick Cheney, and several other senior members of the Bush administration, guilty of war crimes in absentia. The trial heard harrowing witness statements from victims of torture who suffered at the hands of U.S. soldiers and contractors from the CIA in Iraq and Afghanistan. According to the Foreign Policy Journal, quote, professional Gurdiel Singh Najar." Who headed the prosecution said the tribunal was very careful to adhere scrupulously to the regulations drawn up by the Nuremberg courts and the international criminal courts. George Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and their legal advisors, Alberto Gonzalez, David Addington, William Haynes, John J. Beebe, and John Yu, were tried in absentia in Malaysia. The trial held in Kuala Lumpur heard harrowing witness accounts. From victims of torture who suffered at the hands of U.S. soldiers and CIA contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. They included testimony from British man Mozam Boeg, ex-Guantanamo detainee in Iraqi Jamela Abbas Hamadi, who was tortured in the notorious Abu Ghraib prison. At the end of the week-long hearing, the five-panel tribunal unanimously delivered guilty verdicts against Bush, Cheney, Grumsfeld, Addington, you, Bybee, and others. And also, all the key legal advisors, all convicted as war criminals for torture and cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment. End quote. The legislation passed by the Bush White House, led by its legal counsel, and with massive influence from the CIA and NSA, will forever have a ripple effect on this nation and throughout the rest of the world, making us, the American citizenry, suspects of enemy, as labeled as enemy combatants in the future.